Well, for those who may have not been here last week, uh, we began our series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. Now, Galatia was a region in the highlands of north-central Anatolia. Today it's part of Turkey. Um, Paul visited that region with Barnabas on his first missionary journey and they planted a number of churches uh, in Sidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra and Derby. Now when I kind of say it like that in a one-line summary of what happened, it sounds like smooth sailing. It sounds like it was all very easy. In comes the visiting evangelist, lots of people become believers, new churches are planted all over the place. And then he moves on to the next town. <clears throat> but smooth sailing is a long way from the description that we're given of Paul's time in this region of Galatia. His time in this region is recorded for us in the book of Acts in chapters 13 and 14. In City and Antioch, we are told that the word of the Lord spread throughout the entire region, but that the Jews stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they expelled them from that area. They then moved on to Iconium and we're told that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed but the Jews that didn't believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against their new brothers. And the people in that city became divided. And a plot arose amongst the Jews and the Gentiles to stone Paul and Barnabas. But they received word of this plot ahead of time and so they fled that town and headed towards Lystra. And there they continued to preach the good news. But they were joined in Lystra by some of those who'd been stirring up trouble in these other two cities. Uh, and they were able to convince the people of Lystra to stone Paul. And so severe was that stoning that his lifeless body was dragged outside of the city because for all intents and purposes he appeared to be dead. But his disciples gathered round and he miraculously got up and walked back into Lystra and the next day they moved on to Derby, again winning large numbers of disciples before they eventually retraced their footsteps and went back visiting all of these little towns that they had been to, encouraging and strengthening the new churches that had been planted there. So. So that in a nutshell is what was going on in this region of Galatia at that time. It was an exciting time. The Holy Spirit was sweeping across that place and great numbers were receiving the good news. But it was also a very dangerous time for Paul and for Barnabas with the unbelieving Jews and the Gentiles constantly stirring up trouble against them and making attempts to kill them. But trouble and persecution, even attempts on their lives at the hands of these unbelieving Jews and Gentiles would not be the greatest threat to their mission in that region. That was yet to come. And when it did come, it came 
from the inside. Very first verse of the next chapter, Acts 15, tells us, Then some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now these men who came down from Judea, they were believers. They were believing Jews, Israelites, who had historically been set apart by God, part of his chosen people. And an important part of that was their adherence to the laws of Moses. The males were circumcised. They adhered to a strict diet. And they kept the Sabbath amongst a number of other things. And these things were important to them because they were signs of their being set apart. They were signs of this special relationship that they had with God. And they were part of this former identity as God's chosen ones. And these things, some of them had carried with them into their new life in Christ. Now, by Paul's time, there were probably about as many non-Jewish background believers as what there were Jewish background believers. And from amongst those Jewish background believers, there were some who held to this view that to be truly right in a relationship with God, one had to conform to the laws of Moses. <clears throat> so by their way of thinking, a Gentile should first become a, a proselyte Jew, adhere to all of these laws, and then they could accept Christ. And the people that were promoting this view were known as the Judaizers. And they were actively sending out people to this region of Galatia to undermine Paul and his message. These were the ones that had come down from Judea and they were teaching these new believers that they had to be circumcised, amongst other things, according to the law of Moses, or else they could not be saved. To these Judaizers, salvation was a mixture of grace, the grace of God through the work of Christ, but it was also about works, about the things that you did in keeping the law. And this, this and, you must do, you have grace, a free gift, and you must do this as well. This and was what really got Paul so worked up. And we get a kind of sanitised um, view of how he was feeling in the book of Acts. It says simply, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. I think today we would sum that up by saying Paul was fuming at what was going on in this region. And that's the state that he's in when he sits down to write this letter to the churches in this region. He is angry at these Judaizers for undermining the gospel of Christ by adding something to it. And he's disappointed by the people who live in this region and who were receiving this message from them and accepting it. So he gets right to the point 
In many of his other letters, he opens with um, some thanksgiving and a prayer for the, the people who were there. He kind of skips all of that and he gets right to the point and he begins by rebuking. He rebukes the Galatians for so quickly deserting the gospel of grace for this false teaching that has been brought down to them by these people from uh, Judea. And he rebukes and condemns those who have brought it to them and were teaching these sorts of lies. Now that's the first half of chapter one, which we were walked through last week by Pastor Glenn. And up until this point, we haven't been told exactly how these Judaizers were throwing people into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. We know that that's what they were doing, but how they were doing it hasn't been specifically explained. And I think we get a fairly good idea of their messages from the counterclaims of Paul in this next section. And I think you'll find that as we go through, nothing much has changed. We see all of these same elements that are part of these claims played out today just in, in different ways. So we're going to begin by exploring Paul's argument in verse 10. The first type of gospel that Paul refutes is the gospel of human approval. And no doubt Paul would say, as he did say in, in uh, verse 7, which is no gospel at all. Now I've put it up there in, with a small g and in inverted commas because the gospel of human approval is, of course, a false gospel. It was a dangerous beast back then, which is why Paul attacks it head on right at the beginning of his letter. And today it is a monster, which if not reined in, it not only destroys churches, but it completely undermines the gospel of Christ. He says in verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now there's one word in that verse that is very important. It speaks volumes to us, to us of Paul's history, of where he's been and where he's got to. And that is this word, still. That one word tells us that at one time, before his conversion, Paul, like most of us, enjoyed the admiration of others. For him, it was the admiration of his fellow Jews. He describes himself elsewhere as a Jew among Jews, one who was zealous. He was a student of the revered teacher Gamaliel. And by all accounts, he was an outstanding student, advancing ahead of his peers. No doubt, Paul was the ducks of every Torah class that he ever took. No doubt, he memorised scripture and he knew the Torah better than any of his contemporaries. And this, of course, brought him much admiration from others. No doubt, he was pegged as the next 
big thing. And who doesn't enjoy feeling like that? Who doesn't enjoy the admiration of others? Who doesn't enjoy feeling like your opinion matters and that others will take notice of it? We all do. And that is precisely why this verse is so important because it is so easy for pride to pervert the gospel of Christ. And I would say that today we see that as the number one risk in our churches. I, I, you don't have to watch the news very often to see uh, how easily pride perverts the gospel today. So that was the Paul who met uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus. He says himself in verse 14, he was advancing beyond many of his contemporaries and was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. But religious pride and that desire for the accolades of men all had to be put to rest when he became a servant of God. As Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. Now, Jesus made that statement in the context of money, but equally it could be applied to the admiration of others because when human pride messes with the gospel, what results is no gospel at all. So these Judaizers were stuck in Paul's former way and he knew exactly what was motivating them because it used to motivate him as well. Religious pride. They wanted to superimpose the laws of Moses upon the gospel because when we do something like that, we're able to rank one another. Some will be more strictly observant than others. Some will be more zealous than others. And then we create a ranking system. And when that happens, the gospel of Christ, under which all of us, by grace, are made equal, all of us are children of God by a free gift of salvation, not by anything we've done. When we do that, when we seek to rank one another, the gospel becomes overwhelmed in this sea of human pride. So in Paul's time, it was religious pride that was perverting the gospel. But it doesn't matter what flavour human pride takes. It's all driven by this desire to first please people. And it has the same insidious effects. We see its effects in the tragic falls from grace of some of the better known evangelists of our time. We see it when worship services become stage show productions that are more about pleasing the human need for an emotional experience than they are about glorifying God. We see it when churches constantly ask, what can we do to attract people? and seek to put in place programs designed to make people feel good. We see it when churches are more inclined to compete with one another than they are to cooperate with one another. We see it when pastors feel constrained to water down their message, lest they offend somebody. 
And we see it even in the most hard-working churches who labour away faithfully serving the poor and the vulnerable in their communities when they fail to preach the gospel message in the midst of what they're doing, lest they offend those communities that they're trying to serve. Without a very tight leash on our pride, even our very best efforts can be derailed into becoming just another avenue for us to seek the applause of human beings. We cannot be a servant of Christ, says Paul, if we are still trying to please men. Far better it is to have God's approval than the world's applause. Paul then moves on to defend the gospel that he preaches by showing that it is no gospel, again, small g, inverted commas, it is no gospel of human reasoning because, again, that would be no gospel at all. The gospel he was preaching was not something that he sat down and thought about and came up with by his own accord. But I make it known to you, brothers, he says, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came to me through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as key supporting evidence to that fact, he presents his own ridiculous resume. Number one, he was an intense persecutor of the church. Number two, it was his primary aim to destroy the church. Such a person has no interest in carefully considering the claims of the church, meditating and reflecting upon them and making them his own. In fact, if anyone had good reason to argue for the laws of Moses to be retained as part of the gospel, it would have been Paul because he says himself he stood out amongst his peers in Judaism and he was extremely zealous for those traditions. If Paul was going to invent a man-made gospel, surely of all people, he would have retained the requirements of the law in it. And he didn't because the gospel that he preached was not the gospel of human reasoning, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed to him in that life-changing encounter on the road to Damascus. There on his way to persecute the believers in Damascus, the risen Jesus met and personally instructed Paul. Now there was plenty of evidence at the time to attest to this fact. There were others with him on that journey. And there were plenty of effects, both short-term and long-term. He had blindness short-term as a result of that encounter. And longer term, of course, the number one persecutor of the church became its number one advocate. There on that road, having received his instruction directly from Christ, as had the other apostles during the ministry of Jesus on earth, Paul joined their ranks as an apostle of Christ. He then underscores the fact 
that this gospel was revealed to him and not dreamt up or even taught to him by providing an account of his movements after this life-changing revelation. He consulted no one. He didn't go up to Jerusalem. He didn't visit the other apostles or learn from them. He went to Arabia and Damascus for three years. And we can imagine what sort of things might have happened there as he re-examined all of those scriptures that we now know of as the Old Testament in the light of this revelation that he had received. Then he went on to Jerusalem and he spent 15 days with Peter and he's careful to say to become acquainted with Peter. He wasn't there to learn the gospel from Peter. He was there simply to become acquainted with Peter. He saw none of the other apostles, he says, except for James. And then he was off to Syria and Cilicia, relative backwaters compared to um, Jerusalem. The churches in Judea, which were sort of Christianity central at the time, they didn't even know him personally. They had only heard this report of his transformation and they praised God because of him. He labours this point that the gospel was revealed to him because it is such an important point. A man-made gospel only carries human authority. A revealed gospel is divinely authorised. So the fact that this gospel was revealed to him elevates Paul's teachings to the level of the Old Testament. Those scriptures were revealed by God and divinely authorised. So Paul becomes part of this ongoing self-revelation of God that happened first in the Old Testament, uh, carried through the prophets, fulfilled in the life of Christ and now in the early church through Paul and the other apostles. The revealed gospel is unique. There's only one God, so there can only be one revealed gospel. All of the other gospels that people promote, prosperity gospel, the social gospel, charismatic gospel, the gospel of healing, all of these are no gospel at all because there can only be one divinely revealed gospel. The revealed gospel is perfect because it has no human interference with it. Nothing should be added to it and nothing should be taken away from it because to do so is to suggest that the work of Christ on the cross is not sufficient. And to suggest that is to enter into some very dangerous territory because it is to put oneself as equal with God. Effectively, what you're saying is that you know better than God. So all of us, but especially those who preach and teach and hold leadership positions in churches, bear this enormous responsibility to accurately present the gospel as it has been revealed to us in Scripture. This gospel is also unchanging because God does not change. How often have you heard it say that we need to make 
the gospel more relevant. We need to adapt it to our time and make it relevant for a 21st century audience. That is human wisdom. And it was never God's intention that we should be restored in our relationship with him through human wisdom. There is only one way and it has not changed since Paul's time. Paul's life was completely changed in that moment of revelation when by the grace of God, Christ was revealed to him. Everything that had been important to him before, everything that he had strived for suddenly seemed quite worthless. And as impressive as his achievements were to his peers, God was not glorified in them. God would only be glorified when by the grace of God, the gospel of Christ would break through his pride and enable him to see himself as he was, a sinner in need of a saviour. And the same thing applies today. Each of us need to recognise ourselves as a sinner in need of a saviour. The gospel was enough for him back then and it is enough for each and every one of us today. Nothing need be added to it. You know, there was a large and prosperous church in the UK that had planted three smaller missional churches that were there to provide outreach into some of the more difficult areas in the city, some of the slum areas. And there the gospel was taken to all sorts of people people in extremely difficult life circumstances, people who were struggling and who'd had to learn to survive on the streets. And in those three churches, there were some wonderful stories of conversion and transformation. And once a year, the people from each of those three churches would come to the larger sending church at the beginning of the year, the first service of the year, and they would have a combined communion service. Now, this was one of these churches where people come forward uh, and kneel together at a communion rail to receive the elements. And on one such occasion uh, during this time, the pastor noted a former criminal who had recently been released from a seven-year time in prison, kneeling beside the judge of the Supreme Court of England the very same judge who had given him that seven-year sentence to prison. And as they knelt there to receive the elements, neither man seemed to notice the presence of the other. And after the service, the judge was walking home with the pastor. And he said to the pastor, did you notice who was kneeling next to me during communion this morning? Yes, said the pastor, I didn't think you'd noticed. And the two continued walking in silence for a little while longer. And then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. And the pastor nodded in agreement. Yes, indeed, what a miracle of grace. And the judge turned to the pastor and he said, to whom do you refer? And the pastor said, why, of course, the criminal. I was thinking of the conversion of that criminal. What a miracle of grace. But the judge said, oh, I was not thinking of him. 
I was thinking of myself. And the pastor replied, you were, th you were thinking of yourself? I, I don't understand. And so the judge explained, it didn't cost that criminal much to get converted when he came out of prison. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he saw Jesus as his saviour, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy ahead for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. From my earliest days, I was taught to behave like a gentleman. My word was my bond. I was taught to say my prayers, to go to church, to take communion and so on and so on. I was put through Oxford. I obtained my degrees, I was called to the bar and eventually I became a judge. Pastor, nothing but the grace of God could have caused me to admit that I was a sinner on a level with that criminal. It took much more grace to forgive me for all my pride and all my self-deception and to get me to admit that I was no better in the eyes of God than a criminal that I'd sent to prison. You see, it doesn't matter our background. The gospel is enough for each and every one of us. We don't need to add anything to it. We don't need to change it or modernise it or take anything away from it. Jesus Christ, God in human form, came to earth and offered himself to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And by his sacrifice, each and every one of us who choose to believe are set free from the consequences of our sin. We are clothed in that righteousness of Christ and accepted as beloved children of God. That is the life-changing gospel of Christ. It is divinely authorised, it is unique and perfect and unchanging and Paul would passionately defend it and actively promote it for all the rest of the days of his life. It was that gospel that transformed a persecutor into a preacher and it continues to transform hearts and lives for those who accept it today. And as bearers of that same gospel in the 21st century, we have that same responsibility, not only to carry on the task of taking it to the nations, but also to ensure that the gospel of Christ remains purely the gospel of Christ, untainted by any form of human wisdom, untainted by human pride, and untainted by our interference because it is only the grace of God that can change hearts and it is only changed hearts that will glorify God. Amen. Jai, could you lead us? Our final song is All I Once Held Dear and I think uh, the Apostle Paul's life is testimony. <laughs>